0: Paint the tombs of the prophets. I help people look up from those pews and dream. They look up and they imagine that if they lived back in Christ's time, they wouldn't have done what the others did. They would have murdered those whom they now adore. I paint all this suffering, but I don't suffer myself. Make a living of it. What we do is just create sympathy. We create we create admirers. Don't create followers. Christ's life is a demand. You don't want to be reminded of it. We don't have to see what happens to the truth. A darker time is coming. And men will be more clever. They won't fight the truth, they'll so just ignore it. I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I might have the courage to venture. Not yet. Someday I'll... I'll paint the true Christ.
1: Have landed on the substance. I'm your host Trevor Aiken, and I'm your other host Phil Marinello, and we are back today with um, one of our favorite guests from the previous era,
2: Brett McCracken. Yeah, welcome back, Brett. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be back with you. I'm excited to have another Malik conversation.
3: We're very excited, and yes. we're excited to yeah. uh, have a returning visitor. That's that's a nice little uh, accomplishment to have had so
2: far. Yeah, you're number 1 on that. And that's the first repeat guest. I love it.
3: So, Trevor, you wanna why don't you start being the self-admitted at least film guy? And <laughs> yep. this is your your second. My second. You two of 2 Malik, and yep. both being substantive cinema related, so why don't you you lead us in?
1: Well, Malik, it's amazing with the kind of work that he does. It's it's so when you watch the film, it's very clear that it's a work of art. But uh, the basic premise of the movie: we're we're dealing with the World War II era. You're taken into kind of a mountain top, kind of small village in Austria, and the story is about a man who, other than a biography that was finally published in, in the '70s, his life would have been unknown, and, and? he resists the. Nazi Party. Basically, his, his beef is he won't swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler, and the film follows the struggle that that creates for him and his family in his community and with his church as he goes from kind of nervously waiting to get called up a second time for military service to jail, and then ultimately, spoiler alert, his execution in, in Berlin as a, uh, ultimately, uh, they he, they condemn him for treason.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. So, Brett, as the Malick expert, why don't you talk a little bit about placing this within the just overarching filmography of Malick and just in his body of work?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, it's, um, I believe it's his ninth film, feature film. And uh, that's over the span of 40, 50, so years. Uh, yeah, 50, 50, almost 50 years. His first film was in 72, <clears throat> Badlands. So um, he's definitely becoming more um, prolific in his later years. So for, Becoming far more prolific. Mm-hmm. Far more prolific, yeah. I mean, the thing about Malick in, like, the 90s, when, like, The Thin Red Line came out, is like, oh that he's like this Recluse who has only made three films in thirty years and he averages, you know, a film a decade. And so that was kind of the Malik story for the first half of his career. But then in the last um, ten years, really since the Tree of Life, which I think jump started him creatively, it was it was like the Magnum opus that he had been wanting to make for thirty years or something, been trying to get made. And a very personal film, of course. For him. Um, yeah, it's a, a life story in some ways. After mm-hmm. that movie, he's been churning them out. I mean, he's had uh, mm-hmm. To the Wonder, uh, uh, Song to Song, Night of Cups, a documentary kind of Voyage of Time movie that I never actually released in theaters in America. If uh, I can interrupt, IMAX did you end up theater. seeing?
3: Did you end up seeing Voyage of Time, Brett? I feel like I read a piece yeah. on
2: that. I I thankfully LA had was one of the places that had IMAX um, screenings of it, so I saw it twice in the in the one IMAX theater that was showing it. And it can't was blame crazy, you. So mm-hmm. It was absolutely epic as you would imagine a Terrence Malick, you know, film on IMAX. So it was a real shame that, that movie didn't didn't get um, more distribution. I think Europe Europe and some other parts of the world have more chances to see it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, the, um, his output has definitely increased in in the last decade. And, um, in terms of where a hidden life falls, um, obviously thematically there's lots of overlap, I think, with his other films and we can talk about that. Um, he's, he's definitely prone to period films. So, um, Mm. I would say probably if I I can't, think off the top of my head but probably like six out of nine of his films are period films um in terms of being set in some other period in history and so that's an interesting life, observation like i would
3: never i'd never pick yeah. that up but that's that's absolutely true
2: mm-hmm. right yeah so that that's an interesting thing um and, and even though they're period films their themes are, are timeless i think which is one of the the beautiful things about an auteur like Malick is he can experiment with different periods of history, different, even kind of different genre type things. Um, and yet still explore, um, the same, you know, philosophical theological ideas or not the same, but similar ideas. Um, it's his first film. And I believe it's his first film, um, with, mostly European, um, actors, um, or non native English speaking actors. So the lead actors in this film are, are German actors, um, German Austrian actors, um, who they, they spoke English in the film, but not their, um, their first language. So it's the second film about world war two. So that's an interesting little tidbit. Um, thin red line is the other one that's, that in world war ii for yeah, i think i'm gonna catch there. that
3: next i think that's probably going to be your next one trev
2: you have to see which that, we Trevor, we yeah, also yeah, promised you listeners 10, 10
3: <laughs> there will be <laughs> variety in substantive cinema it won't just be a malik terence malik's filmography. <laughs> maybe we'll release it as a bonus retitling or the for later, which we could i mean but we, we absolutely <laughs> are planning on we've we've watched movies we have movies on our watch list it won't just be transcendent cinema. spiritual auteur cinema
1: I mean, but we don't have to apologize for the transcendent <laughs> oh not at all
3: not at, I mean and rewatching this movie, I'm sure, Brett, um before I say that, when was the last time you saw a hidden life?
2: I saw it um early this year I, I want to say early March it was right when the pandemic was kind of starting. That's how I yeah. can date things tree life pre pandemic or post pandemic <laughs> sure or, um yeah. but I thought uh twice in theaters and in, in the fall i actually um before it even came out i got to see a press screening on the fox lot in hollywood and then i requested with a publicist action that i had i requested a second screening i told them <laughs> Very nice. that work. i told them well, i'm think- like one of the world's biggest terrence malick fans i, I could write a book about this movie already so in order to write a good review i need to see it at least one more time can you arrange that for me and they did so i they set up another screening for me um so i saw it twice before it came out and then once um just renting it on um, amazon
3: nice i saw it when it was in its theatrical run uh, i think that was end of 2019
2: Mm -hmm. or so december yeah
3: and so we we watched it a few days ago like it hit very hard at the end of 2019 mm. but i mean watching I mean, it a couple, couple days, days ago was just it's like even harder mm-hmm. hit like it was a ton of bricks and it it felt longer in the theater not that it was a negative thing but like the the impending sense of dread yeah, and like yeah. the anxiety and all that like i left the film i loved it it was an incredible experience but i was I was emotionally exhausted yeah, when right. I walked out of the theater and my mm. wife almost oh, my. Yeah. she almost didn't even like it for a, a couple of hours. She had to like let some of that wear off. Like it's a very right. mm, heavy, heavy film, but watching it recently, the 3 hours went by really fast and you're yeah. just kind of amazed how he he wrote this a number of years ago. It was in the editing process for a couple of years. Like he didn't just cobble this all together to put it out in order to be timely. It was right. just The next thing on his heart, he had read some of the letters, the published letters, and became inspired to write this. And now it's just like kind kind of the perfect
0: in in good
3: and kind of unfortunate ways of like this is like the perfect movie for the time, I think. So when I reached out to you, I was like, okay, let's put together a couple of movies for our first batch of substantive cinema. I was just thinking, I was like, oh man, like I bet A Hidden Life would
2: be perfect. It was
3: almost scarily perfect.
2: Well, it's, a, yeah, a couple of comments on that, because I think you're right. Um, in fact, I'm teaching a class at my church this fall on Christians and politics and how we, nice. as Christians, how we relate to, you know, the political discourse, and I'm thinking about kind of assigning a hidden life as homework for one of the, like, sessions, because I We're do like think it raises, right now. This raises, is so it raises such timely um, questions, but also timeless, you know, and this is one of the things that I think we have to be careful with is to not over like read into the film what's happening mm-hmm. in America in twenty twenty yeah yeah, and I kind of I lamented how much of the reviews and how much of the discourse kind of zeroed in on that and tried to make mm-hmm. it into like you know Malik's anti trump political film. I'm like no like he he didn't even he finished this film like before Trump was even elected president, like if you look at the production history so a, A, it's not something Malik would do. He's not that kind of filmmaker. He, he's more interested in timeless um, philosophical and theological ruminations, um, and B, it just doesn't even make sense with the chronology in terms of <laughs> the politics of our current moment. But all that said, I do think that it's just uncanny how timely the, some of the like principles and ideas really do fall um, in terms mm-hmm. of our, our current moment.
1: Yeah, we weren't even necessarily planning this, because you just mentioned the church and politics, and our first episode is on politics also, and I'm sure, Brett, and what you're going to be teaching, you're going to try to be focusing on timeless truths as well, right? It's not about what right. you need to bring to 2020, so much yeah. as all of the truth of of God's Word applying to what what we could call even political discernment, but... Mm-hmm. And, and this movie even transcends that, because it's more about how a moral backbone can be very uncommon amongst mm-hmm. a very religious
2: people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the issues it raises are, are that it's the challenge of discipleship, it's the cost of discipleship, no matter what culture you're in, no matter what um, era and history you're in. It's the it's the narrow road versus the broad road, you know, it's, scripture describes it's the the path of faithfulness is often a lonely path. And Mm. um, just because Christianity is enculturated or common uh, doesn't mean that it's faithful always. And true faithful Christianity is, is often, you know, you're the anomaly, not, not the norm. And I think this film really captures that in terms of, Franz and his, his very lonely journey, Franz and, and Fanny, as the two mm-hmm. kind of pillars of faith um, in, in this culture and in this village that's pulling them, you know, off the path of faithfulness. Yeah, it's yeah, a time, timeless told- message, for sure.
1: He's told by the mayor, right? He, you're the only one who refused. And that message to the faithful, you're the only one, right?
2: Thinking of the mayor character, like, I think what's so well played in that role is just how clearly you can tell that france gets under his skin you know and it's Mm -hmm. true of any of any culture that's trying to like pressure the lone you know holdouts to, to conform like it's that person who is unwilling to bend the knee to the the mob is it's that person is so offensive to the mob because what that person does is shows that, you know, there's another way. Like, you don't have to sell your soul. You don't have to compromise. Like, um, and it, it just, it's, yeah, it, it's a very um, disgusting thing for the mayor to watch the, the conviction and the virtue of Franz because it reminds him of his own lack of, of virtue and lack of courage. Hmm.
3: I think that's an interesting theme of the movie. And just, I'm, I'm blanking right now on who, who famously coined the term, but just the banality of evil. Like the townspeople, especially. Hannah
2: Arendt coined um, that term, the banality of evil, in her book, I in so... Jerusalem.
3: Yeah, he. Malik intercuts archival footage of Hitler and the parades and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you see he was the evil figurehead. But then you see, like, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in the crowd all over Europe. It's implied that little village in the mountains that is kind of that secluded, almost Edenic type paradise Mm -hmm. place, Mm -hmm. it gets infected, and then the mayor starts spouting all the the nationalistic tribal stuff like us versus them, like they're the parasites, all these things. And it's like the folks in the village who are just following along are not like yeah. arbiters of evil themselves. They are right. folks who are open to, to, to stimuli and influence, and we see this in many things today, where it's like folks are asking the questions like, why, are, why do people who seem to be moral or even folks of faith, why do they seem to sometimes be so oblivious to evil influences around them that affect them mm-hmm. directly?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I love that aspect of the film where it's not, I, I've read this, I think it was either in yours or in Alyssa Wilkinson's, it's not a film about heroes per se. Films where, whether it's, you know, Storm the Hill or all this kind of thing, usually usually kind of in a wartime setting in a way, or like affect all this. And this that's not to say that what Franz did wasn't lion-hearted, but it was, it was simple, it was, it was ordinary in a way. And there's an ordinariness even to the evil that he faces, right? Like, it's not this maniacal kind of villain, but it's just everyday people. And, yeah. and I think the magic of it is you can really imagine
2: yourself as
1: any of the characters.
2: Totally. Yeah, I, I read the, the journals um, that the script is based off of the uh, the actual journal journal of Franz Jägerstatter his letters also between him and his wife and just reading that it was sobering to realize just what we're talking about how at the time in these people's lives as just kind of normal farmers in Austria like it was just kind of this thing that was bubbling up and the rumors of this kind of this Nazi party that was gaining in power and um, they were they were making these choices in real time. Franz is not grandstanding; he's not making a big deal of it. Although increasingly in his letters and in diary diary entries, as he goes further on in time, and he's kind of forced right. Of it, he's forced to like make it more of an issue. But at first, it's just kind of like you know they're talking about the weather and the harvest and the seasons and oh yeah, and there's just a passing mention of like um, this um, nationalist. Uh, Party and kind of some, you can tell Franz is not the biggest fan of it. But it's yeah, it's we look back on it and it's like oh, the Nazi is this you know huge scary you know force, this villainous force. But at the time, it was just for these people and for countless other villages and people in in Austria and Germany, it was just kind of the the, the talks in their reality. Yeah, and so I think that it's a good reminder for us that. Um, the banality of evil is a real thing. It's it, evil is really just a um, it's the choices we make and the small compromises we make and and really the the lack of critical thinking that we sometimes uh, exhibit where we just don't we don't question the, the things that are happening around us and the things that we're being asked to believe or go along with and I think that's what this movie really shows beautifully is how subtle that that really is.
3: I, and I think even more so because yes. of the specific nature of Franz, like, he wasn't ordered to go torch village or go kill civilians or anything. Yeah. The The point of contention in the film was an oath, an oath of loyalty to Hitler that mm-hmm. even one of the clergy was trying to get him to go along with the flow so as to not endanger himself or endanger his family. He's like, God knows your heart. These are just yeah. words. God knows, like, you're not offending God just go with the flow and swear loyalty to Hitler, this was his shepherd who was leading him to swear an oath of loyalty to Hitler. And we can look at that through the lens of history and go, how in the world did he do that? Yeah, you
1: don't gain national prominence and power by publicly being recognized as dark and villainous. And what's funny, too, is we forget, and obviously there's other films that kind of explore this angle that... There's people in the states too that like Charles Lundberg mm-hmm. and others oh. who that was mm-hmm. not subtle. Yeah, who who were like Yeah, this right. makes right. sense. And and there was people I was reading about a philosopher who after the war was like, "Hey, like it, if it wasn't the Nazis it would have been the Bolsheviks, like this was a necessary kind of thing like even after the war." So, for the people involved in it, it's not mm-hmm. black and white. I love what you said, it's subtle. It's small compromises And it's also, on the other hand, it almost seems like it's small acts of fortitude, small acts of critical thinking, small acts Mm -hmm. of faithfulness that rises to that occasion.
3: Yeah, we can take courage from his example. I believe it was his interrogator and even his lawyer and some other folks. The rhetoric was, what are you hoping to accomplish? You're not going to change things. You're one guy, Mm. and by the time he was arrested, it's like, we're in prison. Nobody knows what happens behind these walls. Like you're, mm-hmm. you think you're standing for something, and it's not gonna matter.
2: Mm. Yeah, which makes it so much more valorous and virtuous because, like, he's not living in the age of social media and virtue signaling. You know, he's not making a right. stand publicly. And like, and and that's when virtue really will it really shines is when you're doing the right thing just because it's the right thing, not because anyone notices, um, which, it, which is the, exactly what the interrogator tries to use against him, but it, it, I think it makes him all the more heroic.
1: And it's when we transcend that kind of pragmatism, utilitarian thinking, that kind of thinking is what got the society into the bad place where it was in the first place that there wasn't that the individual life live morally and virtuously on its own has value.
2: Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh can we go back to something um the the logic of um saying that God knows your heart. So what's it's just words.
3: Uh-huh.
2: I think that, that line about the it's it's your heart that matters, it's not your outward actions. That's where this film is like in conversation with silence, which I don't, I don't know if both of you have seen Martin Scorsese's silence.
3: We have, I I love Silence. We were thinking about doing that one too. And it's like, (laughs) we don't want to just do stuff like that, but I think at some point we'll uh, touch on silence on the show. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That would be a great one. I mean, that, that is one of the most interesting theological films of Mm -hmm. the last decade. Hopefully this isn't spoiling it for listeners who haven't seen silence, but essentially the the main character andrew garfield's priest character in silence is forced to make a, a similar choice like do i compromise my convictions for my own self-preservation and is is jesus okay with that or do i do i die you know but keep my conscience intact and keep my convictions pure and uh, that's the same choice Franz is, is making, um, but the two films come to different conclusions about it. So si- Silence, you know, based on the novel by Shushako Endo, resolves the tension by exactly what the priest character tells Franz. Like, actually, like, Jesus himself would want you to have, he would give you grace for this compromise. He would say, I know where your heart's at. Yeah, I know you trust me. You love me but I want you to live on. So go ahead and betray me publicly. That's fine. I'll forgive you. But Hmm. Malik, his answer to it is no, the, the, your, your works matter. And like, (laughs) you, you can't just get off with the the supposed grace of God covering your betrayal. Uh, You have to, you need to be faithful to the end and not betray the name of Jesus and your allegiance to Jesus.
1: It's kind of like what Jesus said about the cup of water. Even something as simple as that, if it was done in my name, he says, that person's not going to lose their reward. Like, I see that and that matters for me. The value is there, right? The value is in him and in living before his face.
3: And I think it was Fanny's father, the line, better to suffer injustice than do it. And
2: yeah. I just
3: yeah. looking around at the landscape that we find ourselves in today, that is not rhetoric I often hear from believing folks with platforms. Obviously we don't want to seek out martyrdom, but when it, it comes, comes to we see injustice. We see we see sin being inflicted upon our neighbors. And are we going to stand up for godly principles? Are we gonna enact and like live out gospel love of neighbor, or are we just gonna Be quiet. Like, are we going to allow others Mm -hmm. to suffer injustice, or are we going to speak up and potentially get some of that on ourselves?
2: Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the the Franz story is that it's it's not a social justice act in the sense that it really has little connection to other people, Um, and that whole quiet, um, you know, hidden nature of it. It's it's really just about him, his conscience, his beliefs and what he's being asked to do or not to do. Um, and um, again, it's not being broadcast on social media. He's not part of any hashtag campaign. So it's, it's the mm-hmm. injustice of, it's a personal injustice.
3: It's just a pure test of faithfulness. Yeah, he's not like a Bonhoeffer
1: who like, is, is involved in a plot to try to like, yeah, affect right. the right. overflow. It's just literally like, no, I, I can't stand for this.
2: Yeah, he's, it's not part of a broader resistance movement, necessarily. I just wanted to touch on, like, there's been some interesting discussion in some other panels I've been on about this film, just about is there any way that we can fault Franz or kind of complicate the heroism of him in the sense of how does it affect his family and, and Franny and his his kids and yeah those who suffer because of his choice and is there any selfishness or pride on his part in terms of the only thing he's affecting by dying for this cause is making his wife's life harder basically (laughs) and Mm -hmm. his family's you know, his kids being raised without a father and so i don't know if you guys have thoughts about that at all it's something i've wrestled with a little bit myself and thinking about the film and what i would do in that circumstance and the ethical thing is sometimes not cut and dry when you consider all the ways that a choice, one way or the other, has ramifications.
1: Yeah, I think the question almost comes from a place. I don't want to be too simplistic with this comment, but it's almost an American way to approach it because we are so individualistic. Mm-hmm. But I think the Bible kind of talks about the collective nature of being a person in community, right? That that your individual moral actions affect all those around you both for good and for ill. And so, yeah, when you take a stand for something, it can't not affect those around you. Yeah. And so it does complicate it, but I think Fanny says this where she's praying to God and and says that you love him more than I do. That is the ethical reality that that has to be brought in in those moments is the fact that like we entrust into the care of the Father the things that we can't compensate for because we're not powerful enough. We can't provide for our families after our deaths. We can't, yeah. we can't mitigate the effects of, our, of the virtuous choice on those that we love. Mm-hmm. Christ goes to the cross, and he knows, I mean, and Mary was told from the beginning that that is going to be pain for her as well, and does, does right. what he can do right with with John taking care of her but there's because we are people in a community it's always there's always an effect like that
3: uh, my take is not that we seek out pain but it is not it, it doesn't strike me as a very sanctified or eternal or a truly christian perspective to elevate the comforts of life to such a point to where mm. that doesn't take into account the Moral harm of him going against his conscience and actually swearing a loath, an oath of loyalty to Hitler, the moral damage that would do to his family and his children. Yeah. obviously it's hard to grow up without a dad, but I imagine it would not be easy to grow up with a dad who was a Nazi
2: yeah, yeah I, I think um, I think the the pragmatism piece um, that we we're just talking about is um, it reminds me of one of the lines where one of the characters said to follow him is insanity. And I think what it boils down to with following Jesus is just that, like we can't approach faith pragmatically and kind of calculating, making all these calculations of, well, how's it going to be for this? And how's it going to affect my family? And how's it going to, you know, work with my reputation? Um, the, what it boils down to is it's always costly and to follow him, to choose to follow him in the way that, you know, he calls us to it's always gonna be a little crazy. It's always gonna look like folly in the eyes of the world. And, you know, even some of the things Jesus says about family, um, in in the gospels, um, when he's asked like who is your mother or brother and he kind of says that really countercultural shocking thing about like basically disowning his blood family and saying, you know, those who follow the will of my father are my family. So yeah, I think the the worldly attachments, um, as good as they are, to family, uh, to blood family, Franz knows that um, the following Jesus is a higher allegiance, even to that that good, you know, that virtuous and wonderful thing of his his family that he's been given. Um, but that's what looks that that is the biggest cost for him. He knows what it's going to cost um, Fanny and his kids, and uh, he he chooses it anyway and. And yet the, the film, from from the beginning scene, it kind of frames everything in this eschatological hope of, like, you know, we will meet again. And, you know, you will, just as we met with me wearing my best dress and you riding in on the motorcycle, like, we'll meet in the valley, you know, under the shadows of the mountains again one day. And that's the hope that the the. I think Franz has, when he goes to his death, is that hope of the resurrection and reunion, um, which yeah makes, makes a, a dark film, you know, still dark, but um, hopeful as well.
3: And that you hit on a theme that we're going to link it in the show notes. You wrote a, a truly phenomenal piece on the Gospel Coalition on it, and I think the part that I that resonated the most with me and I thought was just such a beautiful insight was the the bride and bridegroom imagery, the relationship between the two, and just the, mm-hmm. the clear, clear theological and ultimately eschatological and eternal implications of that picture. And that's something that all good pastors talk about, like, the the unique nature of the the parable of marriage, like marriage is the gospel and the gospel is marriage. And can you talk about about that for a little bit?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was a connection that really um, clicked with me the second time I saw the film. I was just thinking about how central their marriage is in the film and what is Malik doing, even with some shots of like their hands clasped together with their wedding rings visible. And He's, he's clearly making a parable or a, a, a parallel between you know the, the vows and the covenant of marriage and and faith and how you know we as people of faith are in covenant with um with the bridegroom Christ, um but but he's absent, right? For so for so much of Franz and, and Fanny's relationship in the later few years, they're apart, right? They only know each other through letters and um, he, they're hidden from each other and there's this distance. And I think that's how it can feel as the bride of Christ is the church, like Jesus is is there. We know, we trust him. We love him. He's our, you know, we're in covenant with him, but it's still a struggle because he's, we wish he was in the flesh. We wish, We wish he was here with us, you know, in the dirt, you know, with his hand on the plow along with us, but, you know, he's not. And so I think Malick. Those were some, some of the out. hardest
3: scenes. Those were some of the hardest scenes to watch for me. Again, the the banality of evil. One of just the most like wild shots in the movie. It, it just stands out so. And I remember it from the first time I saw it too. Just their neighbor just casually going into their field and stealing from them because there was nobody there mm-hmm. to protect them.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it the and I talk about this in my review, like the the prominence of like kind of widow characters like women who are alone and kind of forging ahead in life without the support and kind of the, the security and the stability of their husbands. So, um, the mother-in-law character, you know, Fanny herself and probably other women in the village who are either widowed or their husbands are just off, um, fighting and to me that it really clicked that that's like and that's why widows I think are are close to the heart of Jesus in in the New Testament like you know care for the widow watch after the widow that's one of the Mm -hmm. church's like calls of compassion because that's our story as as the church we're we're kind of like a Mm -hmm. widow on earth like our bridegroom is off like he's away he's in heaven and he's alive and um, not dead and so in that sense we're not widows but in the okay. sense that we're kind of having to kind of um, deal and struggle, in a sense, um, in a vulnerable place. And I feel like I, I could relate to Fanny in that struggle a little bit. And even some of the scenes of her just, like, pushing the, the um, plow on her own, trying to, like, manage the kids and, and um, live in this harsh climate, this harsh world. Alone, I can sometimes feel like what faith is and you're like, man, I wish Jesus was just here. I wish he was present and just, he could just like defeat all the enemies and conquer all, all the, the struggles. Um, but he's, he's not. And that's, that's the journey of faith. And so as much as this film is about historical period and a, a real historical act of courage on the part of a real person, in some ways it's a parable for the life of faith and the life of the Christian, um, which is kind of what I focused my review on. Um, and the more I think about the film and watch it, it just, it, it stands out to me as one of the best films I've ever seen on capturing that, that dynamic, the the beauty and the struggle of, of faith in, in, in a world that is, is doing everything it can to, to cause you to forsake your, your faith and your beef. And, and Fanny is faithful, right? That's She's the heart of the film. She's the, in some ways, her courage is even greater than Franz because she mm-hmm. she has every reason to betray her husband and say, like, you're going to leave me? You're going to leave me to this uh, alone? Like, why would I stick by you? Why, why would I keep my faith in you? Uh, and, and yet she, she does, even though the cost is absolutely immense for her.
3: One of the things, I, that was, no, that was very good. There was something earlier that you brought up, just kind of its place in history, and I don't know if you, do you have it in front of you, Trevor, or I can read it, the uh, Elliot quote that opens the movie up, or no, it, it closes the movie out, rather, I believe.
1: Yeah, I, I've got it in front of me. You want to read that? Sure, I'll read that for you. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And the things that are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs.
3: So, I mean, Mm -hmm. the implication of that, and that is kind of Mm -hmm. the, where the movie gets its name and the, the thesis of this guy by himself that would have been lost to history if he didn't have his letters published. He has made our world and others' lives better because yes. of his courage, and it would not have been better to give his children a father and his wife a husband. It would not have been better to to compromise at that cost. At that cost. like his at the cost of of his integrity and his truth and at some point, if nobody ever stood up to Hitler, it would have been worse. and now we have the choice to yeah. either stand up to evil or not so it doesn't have to be historic, or like you said, it doesn't have to be hashtag activism or we don't have to have a camera or a microphone in our face in order to to be effect to be genuinely effective yeah it it doesn't need to be like, oh well, what's the benefit of this? yeah, well, it's a good thing, that's the benefit of this,
2: yeah, yeah I think the the beauty of quiet faithfulness is a takeaway for me from the film, like I think if I could. Just kind of diagnose like the 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 health of the church in America. Like I think we just suffer from a severe um, lack of grit in terms of quiet faithfulness. Like Mm -hmm. if, if we just if we just all committed to living our lives, you know, in keeping with what Scripture calls us to, just hands of the plow loving people in our spheres of influence, you know, being Christ-like in our spheres of influence, <laughs> you know, that would that would make the world a better place. It might not move the needle on any social media conversation. It might not, like, get any headlines, but I think part of the problem is um, we're, we're spending more of our energy as Christians today kind of in that, you know, virtue signaling space of, like, am I saying the right things? Am I joining the right hashtag? You know, movements, all of that, you know, has its place. But ultimately, Jesus just calls us to to follow Him in in our individual spaces of of life and influence in our homes, our communities. You know, this film just was a real um, reminder of how beautiful that is and how. Um. That that Elliot quote is just so so gorgeous and such a beautiful reminder that sometimes you don't even recognize the the hidden lives and the the quiet faithfulness in in from in, from millions of people who live those lives. We still don't know about them, and we will never know maybe until heaven. Um, but um, that's a life well lived, you know. Even even if no one knows about it.
1: Yeah. No. That's that's. I feel like there's so much when it comes to things like virtue signaling or, or trying to figure out, like, like, people are trying to figure out what's their responsibility, what's the responsibility of the person of faith? And that's the thing that is challenging because this film shows, even though we look back and we think that the choice of the faithful is clear-cut and obvious, that it wasn't clear-cut and obvious for everyone, right? Everyone who's going along with it's charging Franz with sin. You know, they're charging yeah. him with pride. They're charging him with, in a sense, virtue of signaling. And so, oh, do you do you condemn me? Do you judge me? You know, he's asked. And I said, well, no. I just think this is right. Like this is just what mm. I believe is right. And so there's a vacuum where Christians are kind of trying to figure out, well, what's what's right? Is this you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I offending people? Am I, and how do I actually live with people? And sometimes it seems like we've just got these big elephants in the room on how to live, how to, how to go about something in a way that would be, ultimately, I mean, pleasing to Christ, that would be the right thing to do, mm-hmm. that leaves Christians either on the one side saying, well, I'm just going to go along with the culture of my church and, and just trust that, and on the other hand, leave others with, okay, like, let me, let me try to figure out this thing that's the kind thing to do or the not offensive thing to do. And others, it's performative, and it's, you just kind of get a chaos as opposed to, hey, this is the faithful, quiet life that <laughs> in some ways ends up being louder than it intends to be. Franz's life, like to his village at least, is very disquieting. Uh, to, to, to the, the leaders and, and the people around, but not because he's being loud, but because his witness is loud.
2: Yeah.
3: Good. Running towards the end here, Brett, but I definitely want to hit the, uh, the scene with the, uh, the artist in the church. The comfortable oh, yeah. Christ. Yeah. The, uh... The, uh, the, the painter of relics and the creator of admirers.
2: Non-followers. Mm-hmm.
3: So you wrote about that as a a bit of a Malik stand, in I mean, what uh, what about that scene stood out to you?
2: Yeah, I mean that's the scene that I feel like a lot of people have found really interesting, and I'm not the only one who's wondered if if uh, Malik is kind of making a meta statement about um, his own kind of perspective as an artist. And um, clearly, Malik is a religious artist, just like this guy in, in the scene. He's someone who wants to. Present audiences with cinematic depictions of, of faith and Jesus, maybe in more roundabout ways than um, the overt ways that the painter is in the film. But yeah, I,
0: I'm—I
2: I actually, the next time I see the film, I want to like pause and kind of look at that scene more. Um, but I do—I do wonder if Malik is—that's his inner struggle. Like, I want to. I don't want to just present Christianity as it's comfortable either to the audience or to me. I want to really wrestle with the, the uncomfortable aspects of, of faith and present hmm. audiences with uh, Jesus that, <clears throat> you know, will discomfort them. And, um, and it's interesting that his next film is, is like his most explicitly Jesus film. Like it's a historical film about Christ with an, a literal, a literal actor playing Jesus. It's called The Last Planet. That's, it's currently being filmed I'm in Italy, I think. That. So that's interesting. It's almost like that scene is kind of or perhaps foreshadowing met a, met a in, his, there. in his tenth film, you know, which is going to be presenting Jesus in, in the most direct way he has yet. Wow. wow. So those are I really... I, really
3: um, I think the first bits of dialogue I thought were very interesting. It was... Uh, both a condemnation, but a grace—a gracious condemnation. And it's one you hear uh, pastors often talk about uh, when talking about either the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or the crowd who ended up condemning Christ in the Gospels. Because the artist himself made that comment saying, these folks think that if they lived back then, then like they would be on the right. side of the righteous. But like they right. wouldn't, and their words to friends were just go along like god knows your heart like think about your family and, and they're yeah. the ones looking at these paintings going oh like isn't that so pretty like i would love to be mm-hmm. around like halo jesus with like the glowing idealistic view like i'd love to hang out and have a meal with like floaty angel and jesus when like no like now you're in the midst of like an onslaught of true evil and mm-hmm. your advice is to go along with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's almost like Malik is speaking to the just the dynamic of how often Christians just make Jesus into their own image or they make Jesus kind of um, conveniently affirm whatever comfortable paradigm they already have. And so Jesus inevitably becomes a comfortable Jesus because we domesticate him in whatever you know, whether we're on the political left or the political right yep. or yeah, yes. anywhere in between, that's just the human tendency. And I think Malik is the artist character is trying to communicate that Jesus is always gonna like unsettle you and discomfort you a bit and challenge your paradigms and faithfulness is being willing to to be you know, made uncomfortable when confronted with the true Jesus. And it's also, like, asking us that really provocative question, which I think that we should always ask ourselves is, is, would we have been any different, you know, in, as Christians in Germany in that moment, would we have made any different choices, like, in things like slavery, like, if we were white Christians in, you know, the antebellum South, like, would we have stood up against slavery, like, and, and call, called it an unbiblical thing, like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think I would. Like, it, it's easy to look back on history and say, and Historically, your, you wouldn't. Virtue, <laughs> yeah, right? we, we wouldn't. But, yeah. It's just a good reminder, I think, for all of us to just be sober about our, our constant temptation, to want to have a faith, have a Jesus that, that affirms whatever we want to be true about our culture, about our lives. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that, that takes so many different forms. Uh, but uh, I think that that's one of the big takeaways for this film is where in my life am I, you know, choosing comfort uh, or, or kind of forcing my fate to, to um, yeah, to, to affirm, affirm me where it should be calling me to deny some aspect of my existence
1: one of the things that's so challenging to continue to to have Christ unsettle us is that we find the one place that he has unsettled us in the past and so we say therefore and this is a struggle i found in my own heart like therefore i am with jesus therefore i am on the side of the righteous therefore i am you know i have removed myself from from the crowd of people who condemn christ because i had this one thing that i used to be And he changed me on that, and that can be so many different things, theologically or socially or different issues that we come learn about. But it's like, we have to continue to be challenged by the character of Christ, continue to be unsettled, because just because he kicks us out of one track doesn't mean that we should be comfortable in another track. Like, the cause of Christ it doesn't seem like it's ever going to just fit neatly into a track, fit neatly mm-hmm. into, like you said, a political party, fit neatly mm-hmm. into any, any, sort of any kind of human that. structure, right? They all can be critiqued by his morality and his perfect life. And, and so yeah. we have to be so careful to always be critiquing ourselves and our commitments and our participation in these movements and, and our identification in that. Because if we don't, we, in a sense, lose that just pure identification with Christ, rather yeah. than identifying with some other kind of trend or entity in our time.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a very big difference between fandom of Jesus and followers, and uh, yeah, I mean, that that's what this film confronts us with, is what what does following Jesus require? What is the cost of discipleship? And you're exactly right. It's a question we should ask ourselves constantly: um, what does allegiance to Jesus above all look like? Because if we're if we're honest with ourselves, we are almost always putting our allegiance to Jesus a little bit below other allegiances, mm-hmm. and I mean yeah. yeah. that's where that's where things go haywire. That's where, <laughs> that's why the political kind of scene in America with evangelicals is frankly so corrupt, is because so many have have reversed the order of allegiances and Jesus is just a nice add-on or a justification for a higher allegiance to politics or you know a certain yeah. cultural you know preference or something but but that, I mean that's a expectation across the board so I'm not saying any one side of any issue is guilty of it only I think we're all prone to yeah, just not having our allegiances in the right priority as Christians. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I the baby's crying in the background.
3: No,
1: that's, <laughs> that's great. all right. We've got we've got kids running Everyone around here too.
2: Up from naps right now. There
3: you go. Well, that's you his go. first podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> well, we super duper appreciate your time. Before uh, we let you go, I did want to ask. We do a thing. We do a segment on our show called Substance Shoutouts, and we're not going to do that ourselves here, but. As a, particularly with your position at the Gospel Coalition, arts and culture, what have you been reading, watching, listening to that you've found particularly substantive or of value or enjoyment?
2: Yeah, um, it's been a weird summer for, for movies, of course, because so, been so, so few of in the released in the, pan, in the pandemic. Um, but probably the best movie I've seen recently is the documentary Boy's State. That um, won one of the Sundance awards this year. It's a really timely, interesting look at politics through the lens of this high school um, mock mock politics um, camp, Boys State. So that's one recommendation I would have. And then, um, I mean, music is so hard because there's so much music being released <laughs> these mm-hmm. days. Um, it's hard to keep up with it, but. Um, uh, I've been really enjoying Josh Carroll's new album of him recently. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a book that I'm just reading now that um, is kind of speaking about Jesus and kind of the, the what it means to follow Jesus. It's a really beautiful look at the heart of Jesus. It's called Gentle and Lowly yes. uh, Dane, by Dane Orland. <clears throat> it's so
3: one
2: good. of the most beautiful kind of theological reflections I've read in some time, so I'd recommend that one to every to every Christian. Just kind of like, you strip everything away, like, what is the heart of Jesus, and what, what is it that we're called to do with him? It's, so that's that's a beautiful book I would recommend, Gentle and Lowly.
1: It's Yeah, I second that shout-out for sure.
3: My music listening's been terrible. I always appreciate when you post music recommendations, just because... I feel like now that I'm an old man in my 30s, like, I have, I have, have bands, bands and artists that I really like that I find out on Twitter after they've released a project. And I'm like, I don't I even know. They, they were, like, coming out with one. So I, know. It's I feel so terribly you, out it, of the it, loop. It,
2: there's so much music being released in the age of streaming.
3: and it's, I mean, It, is, it is terribly sad about movie theaters, but I am, I completely understand. But I, yeah, I, hope, I all, hope all uh, the independent, independent theater. theaters make it and that we get to see some new movies in an actual theater at some point here Steve. I know.
2: I'm waiting for the day when I can safely, safely return to a movie theater. Um, maybe good. I'll see tenants in theaters in the next few weeks. I'm it's really, really
3: considering it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm but, super considering it. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Brett, thanks no again for bro. your time. I, we, yeah. would, we would love to have you back at some point in the future. We don't want to take too much of your time. Maybe for a non Malik one (laughs) for a change. Yeah, uh... (laughs) we should try that. For
1: sure. Yeah, it's it's always a pleasure reading your work and having you on. And I don't know that I would have been exposed to this kind of stuff without you guys. So I appreciate that. And I know I'm sure many of our listeners do as well. Um, So definitely everybody check out uh, Hidden Life.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have links in the show notes to where you can rent or purchase it uh, digitally as well.
2: Great. thank you guys. It was a great
3: conversation. We'll uh, we'll be in touch. We'll talk to you later, Brett.
2: Okay, see ya.
3: Bye bye. See you then.
1: Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us for this substantive cinema episode. And what a great conversation! So I, much fun.
3: That was that was an excellent conversation. We hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. Yeah, absolutely. And. Uh, Hit us up on. You can follow us at facebook.com/thesubstancepod or at Twitter and Instagram at thesubstancepod. And you can send us an email.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Our email address is thesubstancepod at gmail.com. And if, especially if you watched A Hidden Life, let us know what you think about the film, what moments stood out to you, what do you think about kind of some of the ethical things that we talked about or the way the moral fortitude of a hidden life matters. And you can also, if you want to talk to us about those things, call our phone line, 913-703-3883. You basically go straight to voicemail on that so that you can leave us a message. And we would love to hear uh, your thoughts, your feedback, and if it's something that's pretty
3: profound or we just like it for whatever reason, you can end up on the show. Give us a call. Leave us a message. I want to throw it out there. We want you to, if you if you have any interest in seeing this, highly suggest you uh, seek out this film. We're going to put links in the show notes to to rent or purchase it. and And this is the type of film that is viewed really well in a group. So if you get a group of people together and see this movie because of this discussion, we absolutely want to hear about how I that guess. goes. We do like movie club evangelism.
1: <laughs> nice. And we're looking forward to our next Substantive Cinema when Vince will be here with us
3: and join us. Oh, that one's going to be the... uh, Do we want to tease what that's going to be? You can... I mean, you do what you need to do, man. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I am really looking forward to that discussion because famously and our friend group trevor uh you and i are on pretty opposite ends of the spectrum and all pretty much thus far in the substantive cinemas that we've had um in the few that we've had so far we've pretty much been on the same side so i did not love this film the first time i saw it so super interested to watch it with you and then have that discussion i think that's going to be a really good conversation
1: awesome well thanks for joining us for the show this week and we'll see you next time
3: This was a phenomenal movie that we probably could have talked for hours and 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 hours hours and hours and hours and hours and hours